0: Welcome to Season 1, Episode 23 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host, Ben. Joining me today is Max Lawton. Max is a writer and translator, and he joins us from his home in New York. Welcome to the show, Max.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: I became aware of you as a translator, especially through your work with Sorokin. Can you tell us a bit more about yourself and where you grew up?
1: Sure. Um, so I um, was born in Brussels because my parents were working uh, as lawyers, and I lived there till I was about three and a half. Um, and so as a result of that, I my French is my first language, but I speak English way better uh, because I... Um, Even though my mom kept speaking with me, and I did go to preschool in Brussels, being schooled in a language is really what makes you a native speaker. So I got a big leg up in French, but I'm a native speaker of English, It's this weird paradox. But we moved to Chicago, a suburb of Chicago then, and then uh, moved to Wisconsin when I was 12. So I always had a weird kind of conception of myself as being like a European, but wasn't really. (laughs) So uh, that kind of colored my childhood but um yeah so i essentially grew up in the midwest the united states with this extra little flavor thrown in
0: okay and where were your parents from
1: my uh my mom's from oregon and my dad is from michigan so they were just uh, my mom's a big Europhile, and so she she uh and my parents had this opportunity and so they lived in brussels for i think 10 years about maybe eight and i was yeah so um they uh I was lucky that my mom speaks French so well too, because she spoke to me when I was growing up and it never went away, which is having the two languages when you're growing up is important for the plasticity of that part of your brain, I think.
0: Mm, Definitely. So how many languages are you fluent in?
1: Oh, that's a, so I'm very fluent in, uh, Russian, French and Spanish. And I'm reasonably fluent in Turkish and German, and I am good at reading in Italian, but I'm going to take a speaking class to get my speaking back up to speed. So I'd say that, yeah, French, Spanish, for example, as a translator, I'd say French, Spanish, and Russian, I wouldn't need a co-translator because I wouldn't need anyone looking over my shoulder. Uh, German and Turkish, I would like one. And then Italian, I would definitely like one. But, um, so, yeah.
0: so interesting so what sparked your interest in languages
1: i think it's less i don't know i mean it's maybe less to do with languages and more to do with being able to read books that you can't read without those languages in a certain sense so i always just i think part partially was to do with an was an identity thing so going to school in the midwest where i felt like i didn't particularly fit in and uh french was like this identity card that uh separated me from from uh the the environment i grew up in and so i would kind of like uh feed that part of my identity and uh and then spanish came about because i guess i was able i, don't know, I read welbeck pretty early which is funny um but i don't know i don't and i read it in french and i really loved welbeck and I, and i think the kindly ones came out around then and there was this sort of, kindly ones must have come out in french in 2006 2007 so right about when i was in high school i heard about it and got it and then i heard about 2666 the 2666 craze happened so i wanted to learn spanish and uh, i kind of felt like there was this unlimited tre- treasure tr- trove that you could just sort of access by having uh secondary languages and um, then of course in high school i read about Sorokin and i loved dostoevsky and so i kind of it was literally to, to to read Sorokin that i kept pursuing russian it was sort of like the carrot on the stick for me learning Russian. So it's so amazing that it's all worked out the way it has with him, because I think that's pretty rare. But yeah, so for me it was a combination of probably like uh maintaining allegiance to a place where to elsewhere in a place where I felt I didn't belong. And then a combination of that and, and sort of the accessing treasure troves that you otherwise wouldn't be able to to engage with. And then the the best translation, the best definition of a translator I've ever heard. Is it someone who takes something that he can't fully understand and makes it into something that he can't, or they can't, uh, obviously. But uh, so I think that's that's very true for me, that uh, translation is taking these books where I'm sort of, you know, uh, looking up at them in awe and going, wow, these complex edifices, and uh, then trying to bring it home for people and for myself, just to be able to say, oh, now I fully understand this here it is
0: let's talk about translation a little bit more because i think that uh lately there's been more of a focus on who the translators are and and putting their name on the front of books Mm -hmm. who are some of your favorite translators around at the moment
1: there are a lot of uh really interesting really good translators i think i mean obviously uh john e woods i think uh, john e woods the german translator who did uh all the schmitz and the Thomas Mann is a um, total master. He is, uh, His translation of Zettel's Traum, um, Bottom Stream, is just amazingly good. It, it's, it reads, it's its own text. And I think that's uh, what every translation should aspire to be, sort of like a cover version, um, that you are hitting the same beats, you know, the same notes, but you also do it with your own style and your own attention to detail and your own sort of, Uh, yeah it's it it is its own thing it needs to be self-contained so I think his translations are intimidatingly good Um, I also have the translators who did the Bolaño I'm really indebted to them because they were the first way I read Bolaño who was really important for me to certain really in high school but still an amazing writer so Natasha Wimmer and Chris Chris Jones, Andrews, I believe. Chris, Chris Andrews, Andrews yes. yeah. Yes, yeah. Chris Andrews, yes. Natasha Wilmer and Chris Andrews, they really did an amazing job bringing um, bringing him into English. I just read uh, the Morning Star, the new canals Gold book, uh, which was translated by Martin Aitken, and uh, also Don, his last the Don, the other guy who translates canals um, Gold. I believe his last name is. Oh, I forget. That's not good. <laughs> but, <laughs> That I, I really, I mean, all these translators who have brought uh, the, not Don Gately, I think Don Gately's a Stephen King character.
0: <laughs> no, Don Don Gately's from uh, Infinite Jest.
1: Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, anyways, uh, and, and another intimidating translator is obviously uh, George Syrtes, who translated the first few Krasno Horkai novels. Mm. So I feel like I'm just indebted to the translators who have brought um works that have been important for me into English uh, in a way that has not just not ruined them but you know uh really brought their majesty home and I think uh so the writers who were very important for me I think in translation were it's maybe a bit cliche but it was really Horkai and uh mm-hmm. and uh and uh Bolaño in that really formative stage but um that those translators did some amazing work uh, in the past as well. There have been I'm trying to think. Uh, obviously, if you look at someone like Ralph Manheim, it's in, he's an intimidating, intimidatingly amazing translator. His translations of Peter Handke that I read last year, I was just uh, really amazed by how how clean and fluid they were. And I, we actually did. I have a reading group, and we did an interesting comparison of his translation of Tindrum, the Tindrum with the new translation, which is supposed to be more accurate, but of course it loses a lot of its um, sort of neat precision because I think Ralph Mannheim was just a very good stylist in his own right. So his translations are are very neat and and tight. And uh, no, he's great. The one other, there's a a very specific uh, and kind of random, (laughs) I don't, I'm actually, I'm sure that he's done a lot, but I don't, I'm looking up his name. I don't, um, I believe he's passed away. And I, uh, so there's this book, Astrophobia, by Sasha Sakhalov, that is, in Russian, it's called The Palisandriad, essentially. It's a really good book, and the translation is absolutely incredible. I think it's it's definitely a time uh, I sort of looked at a translation and went totally, totally green with envy, because the translation is just incredible. And it was translated by Michael Henry Heim. Michael Henry Heim. Uh, so I highly recommend the translation of Astrophobia by Michael Henry Heim. I, I looked at that last year uh, just because I was curious and it was really just incredible.
0: What do you think makes a good translation versus a bad translation? Because I obviously reading in English, I know what, what reads well to me in English, but not having the background in, in other languages to read them to that degree. Uh, I can often tell when things are really poorly translated, but I can't really tell what makes them really well translated.
1: Yeah, I think what it has to, Edwin Frank, the editor of the New York Review of Books had a funny phrase he said to me when we were at this translation conference, or actually it was, Russia, oh, it was a translation conference in Cape Cod, he said that he had gotten a very bad manuscript, he had to edit of a translation, and he said that the translator had just been bewitched, and mesmerized by the original in such a way that they'd created this totally uh, bizarre and, and not uh, totally unique and bizarre English because they'd been so bewitched by the original. And I think that's that you have to have a degree of incaution or like recklessness, which sounds crazy, but I think you have to recognize that you're creating a new thing. It's totally self-contained, and uh, and that's much easier with a living author who's giving you the the pass to do so. So when Sorokin is sort of saying, "Yeah, you can do that. Yes, go ahead," um, that you know, then I feel okay doing it. Whereas it would be interesting to have an author who wasn't as sensitive to the uh, questions of translation and how to make a text that works in English as well as in the original. And it would, and I think obviously. A de- translating a dead author would be uh, kind of uh, more difficult in the sense that those departures would be unlicensed. So, so you know, uh, so I think w- dealing with classics, translators tend to get in a lot more trouble because it becomes a sort of scholarly exercise. Whereas dealing with living authors in a contemporary translation, I think there's more, mm, readers are more comfortable with uh, the translator. You know taking taking a degree of license
0: very interesting let's talk some more about sorokin i'm reading his ice trilogy at the moment and i'm planning to make, read a lot more of his work how would you place him on the literary world
1: map mm. i mean there are a few different ways you could do it i think in a one way it would be that he's a contemporary Nabokov. of that he's sort of like the descendant of Nabokov in the Russian literary context. I think that's not a bad way of understanding him. Both have very broad uh, bibliographies that span span a lot of different styles. Um, Both uh, are very conceptual. uh, Both um, have sort of repeated literary behaviors in a sense that at first you don't understand but then make more sense uh, as a function of going through their bibliographies i think that's also true of peter hondky and that's why uh sort of as a as a reader and as a writer i feel like peter Hankey, nabokov and Sarokin are really good uh models because they create their own self-contained universes and they don't they repeat themselves in a way that creates meaning so they create you know, whereas at first you maybe see something they do and you go, "Huh, that's very odd." See it again and again, and you go, "Okay, this is actually very interesting." And it's sort of, sort of like Wagner with the light motifs. Uh, if you if you listen to a Wagner opera for the first time, you might not get uh, the fact that he's kind of created this alternate way of doing things that's uh, very very exquisitely precise and delicate. You might just think it was very chaotic. But um, so I think the creation of meaning through repetition throughout a vast bibliography aligns Sorokin with Nabokov. I would say that he's an enfant terrible in the same sense as Welbeck is or or um or Kacht. Um, I think they all sort of provoke, and Sorokin does enjoy being provocative in a certain sense, but I don't think he's doing the... He's not being provocative for the sake of it. I don't think that's his his aim. I think... You know, there's a con- broad consensus in Russia that he's the most important living Russian writer, and the most important Russian writer, really, probably since Nabokov. Although uh, some people might slot other writers in between Nabokov and Sorokin, I wouldn't. But um, he, certainly, they agree that he's the most important writer of the 20th, 21st century, at the end of the at very end of the 20th. I think that's an un- uncontroversial claim at this point. Um, so I think that he's just a very unique. Flavor in the world literature landscape who needs to be engaged with for a complete understanding. I think he's, you know, he's a provocateur, but he's also a very deeply religious spiritual man. He's uh, a vicious, vicious, vicious postmodern brutalizer of styles, but he's also a sort of um, can be a very tender writer at times who's uh, weirdly emotional, which I think people miss that a lot. Um, and I think that, yeah, without having read at least his most important books, uh readers of world literature are just totally deprived of something important, and I think there's a weird way in which Russia is sometimes way ahead of world literary trends in the sense that if you look at Gogol, Gogol is such a radical writer for the nineteenth century, just unbelievably radical and 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 he was sort of a, a backwards guy in a lot of respects like he was totally insane in his religious beliefs he believed in russian autocracy published this book like called letters with friends something more or less i think and that uh sort of details the ways in which russia should be a theocracy and um yeah i think that uh but he, the the books he created the the literary works he created are so ahead of their time are so radical and i think russia has this weird power uh in on the literary plane they they the soil there the air whatever it is the the, the very very interesting very unique and very uh ahead of their time writers Come forth from it and the world just has to contend with it and you know they'll only understand it in 20 or 30 years uh you know or 20 or 30 years after after it's been produced rather and I think Sorokin is an example of that the work the world is only just beginning to understand how ahead of his time Sorokin is and what he the boulders he's sort of shifted It's
0: so interesting you say that because I feel like he's been somebody who's just very quietly snuck up on the western world and I don't think that, uh, I know in Australia anyway, and I'm sure in America it's the same, I think that there's a view of um, Russian writers and Russia in general that probably doesn't have the level of importance or the level of, um, of relevance to the Western world as, you know, something from Europe or, or South America even. And mm-hmm. I think that hopefully we do catch up with that because I think you're right that I think there's a lot about the russian culture and the russian um way of writing that we've kind of i feel like we've missed out on
1: yeah i think you're right i also think there's a way in which um russia did become more conservative in a certain sense aesthetically after the fall of the of the iron curtain so i think a lot of post soviet literature is just really bad um so i think i can understand the and i also think 20th century russian literature is a complicated beast because soviet literature is not Particularly good, Sorokin is vicious about how much he hates Soviet literature. Um, Even Platonov, Sorokin, is uh, calls him a centaur, (laughs) and he said, like you know, totally inhuman, just this bizarre, uh, unfeeling language of centaurs. Um, I think I understand why the 19th century is the ultimate Russian literary brand. I don't think it's a coincidence that Nabokov wanted to write in English. Right, he wanted to be a part of the most innovative literary culture. Uh, and I think that English language literature in the 20th century really is a beast to contend with. But I think Sedokin sort of brings back some of the most innovative, um, I don't know, traditions you could say of Russian literature and, um, and really comes out swinging and is putting Russia back on the map in term, in terms of the most innovative uh, works produced. I mean, there are a lot of, like, also the oppositional political narratives mean that a lot of boring books get airtime because it's like, uh, oh, it's an anti-Putin book about X, Y, Z, you know, uh, and I, I can, th- I won't <laughs> name names, I guess, to not be an ass, but um, I think a lot of books are uh that are just reproduce oppositional political frameworks in a sort of uninteresting way get a lot of airtime in the west and i think that people don't like those books necessarily because they're not that interesting or they just have this you know it's just oh wow this must really be uh important this is very brave to write something like this and then that's it that was a problem during the soviet union as well but the sort of the cold war was so much more defining of the cultural landscape that people could read stuff like the gulag archipelago and get something out of it. Whereas I don't think there's anything of, I don't like the Gulag archipelago, so that's not a good example, but mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's not that I don't, it's fine, it is what it is, it is how could I? There's a very funny scene in uh, Sorokin's novel, Marina's 30th Love, where Marina, the protagonist, imagines having sex with uh with um, Solzhenitsyn, and uh, he's referred to as a capital H-he, uh, so it's sort of like he's taken on this divine uh, status. And it's just sort of this very long fantasy. I think she even prays to him. But in any case, I think she dreams of him giving her her first orgasm. So that the, the point is that I think Solzhenitsyn took on this incredible status in Russia and the West. But uh, no, I think that the oppositional narratives actually led to some interesting books getting um, put out in the West during the Soviet Union. But I don't think that's been the case in the Putin era. I can't think of... I mean, Day of the Aprichnik was put out as an anti-Putin book, but the issue is Sorokin's an anti-political writer, even when he's political. Hmm. So, yeah.
0: You've translated 10, probably more, of his books now. So for, I guess, for readers, where would be a good place to start with him?
1: Hmm. So... I actually think that um, I would say for what's out now, I would recommend starting with the Blizzard. I think uh, Ice Trilogy, I like a lot. Um, I just think it's a book that you can't fully understand. It's a bit like what I was saying before about self-contained literary universes. I think if you read the Ice Trilogy out of the blue, you you won't get much out of it. I don't know what your experience is. I'd be interested to hear. But I think that a lot of the things that Sorokin's doing don't necessarily come through on a first read, um, so I think the Blizzard is sort of a neat introduction um because it's sort of it's an engagement with Russian literary classics. the to- the The total cliche is that uh, Russian literature professors who are kind of a bit older and conservative will say, "Oh, Sorokin, that's not literature. That's horrible." But the Blizzard's actually okay, and it's because he's repeating sort of this. Um, short novel or short story that's been done by pushkin tolstoy you know getting lost in a blizzard it's sort of like this total russian literary archetype or i don't know master story um yeah. and so if what's out now i would recommend reading the blizzard reading horse soup in n plus one if you you know uh reading white square That was an n plus one reading red pyramid then maybe dave the aprichnik but i think by the time you get through those telluria and therefore hearts will probably be out and those are perfect i actually think the launch has worked out perfectly because um telluria is a later period work that's much more accessible than some of the early stuff in a certain sense but it's also formally innovative so it's 50 chapters each chapter of which has a different voice and it takes place in this new medieval age fantasy kingdom version of uh, Europe and Russia, where a giant holy war between the Middle East and uh, and Europe has sort of fractured all the pre-existing uh, cultural and governmental systems. And uh, the each chapter just takes a different voice um, and a different character and a different story. And they can be very fanciful, like a a harem of dildos sentient dildos, uh you know there's a centaur who speaks in a weird fake version of old Church Slavonic, so in my translation he speaks sort of like middle english uh or old English inflected middle english um and I think it's a very accessible book, it's sweet, nothing too transgressive, there are a couple nasty parts, but nothing nothing to compare to their Four hearts, which is also coming out, which is a very good uh early Sorokin text that is sort of like a mix of Hitchcock and Giotta, I would say. So you've got like, (laughs) it's highly transgressive, but it's also choreographed in the neat way of an old Hollywood film. And I think that before in the launch of Sorokin in the West, what's been lacking is sort of the bipolarity of his project um, or the duality thereof. So you have the old stuff, which is very radical, very cold, uh very very extreme and then you have the newer stuff where he sort of comes to meet the reader it's a lot of russian critics have said and i think that they inform each other and enrich each other so i think that both poles make the other poles stronger in the same way that uh actually this is a conversation that happens in one of in the norm sorokin's first novel where they're talking two characters as they eat shit are talking about uh, picasso And they're talking about how, if you look at one of Picasso's paintings, it's like, okay, fine, whatever. And then you put them all in a room. Um, You know, if you have a museum of all Picasso's paintings, you have it's incredible that he could do all of this. So he might not have been the best surrealist as such, but boy, if you look at his surrealist paintings next to his realist paintings, next to his cubist paintings, next to his, well, you know, it's incredible. And I think that's the theme that I come back to a lot in artistic production that, a body of work is really the best way of creating art, just through the body of work and not through individual texts. So I really would recommend, I guess, if you want to start reading now, uh, read the blizzard, read uh read the two novellas, I guess, that really have come out in N plus one, check out Red Pyramid, and then by that time, uh Tiluria and uh Therefore Hearts will have come out. Read Teluria first and then you know, dip your Dip your toe in, therefore, hearts. It's uh and uh it, it's extreme. There are some very unpleasant parts, but there's a purpose to it, and um Sorokin knows what he's doing, and uh and then I think the the release schedule is really nice, actually. I think it's pretty much perfect for for a staggered reading schedule, Sorokin stuff, and I think if you just follow it, um then then you'll. You'll get the full picture. And there, there might even be a few other books added to it uh, in the next few in the next few years.
0: So they're coming out next year, a lot of those books, aren't they? Mm-hmm.
1: Tillory and There Hearts are coming out next year. And then the following year we have Blue Lard and a collection of early short stories. Then the following year we have The Norm and Raman. Then the following year we have Marina's Thirtieth Love and another collection of short stories. And then there's an unsigned, as of yet, sequel to The Blizzard. There's an unsigned sequel to Day of the Aprichnik*, and there is an unsigned novel called Manaraga. There's an unsigned collection of the rest of the short stories, so that's sort of everything that's in the offing.
0: Wow. He's going to keep you busy, isn't he?
1: Yes, definitely. Well, I've already done, so I've done, I've finished *Blue Lard, Artillery of Their Four Hearts, both collections of short stories, The Norm I have a good draft of, The Sugar Kremlin, which is the sequel to Day of the Aprichnik*. is done. Um, but I have not done... I, I, I've done a good chunk of Raman I've done... And then I have not begun Marina's 30th Love, Dr. Gar and the sequel to The Blizzard, Monoraga, um, or the... They're, so there are like five or six I haven't done. Uh, but I, I've, I've gotten a good leg up, which is nice.
0: Hmm. And what publisher is going to put them out?
1: NYRB is doing... Um, is doing... Telluria, Lulard, The Norm, and Red Pyramid, one collection of short stories. Dalky is doing Their Four Hearts, another collection of short stories, Rahman and Marina. And then um, FSG would probably have to do Dr. Garan and the Sugar Kremlin, but we haven't, we don't know what's up with them yet um, because they're sequels to two books that FSG have already put out. So it'd be weird if someone else put them out.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. Let's move on to some of the other projects you've got on the go because I know you've got so much happening. So what can you talk about?
1: Yeah, no, I, I could talk about a lot actually because um, so the really cool stuff and I'll just pull up the list that I sent as well so I can uh, remind myself with texting the <laughs> publisher to see what I could, what was off limits. Um, But uh, so they're really, the, I'm really excited about a lot of stuff. So I think I'm going to be working with on, on his second novel, which is wow. amazing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, huge. Yeah. Nothing's been signed yet, but, um, that, that would really be an honor, uh, because is one of my favorite novels, um, and the publisher reached out to me about this project, which was just incredible. I, I'm pretty sure that's, that's happening. That's, and then, so that'll kind of take priority over a lot of the other stuff, which, so as a translator, you work often, you produce a long sample and then share it um and so you're not working on commission in the same way i don't know i mean it's, it's the system it works that way that you want to produce like a 20 to 50 page sample and then you pitch it and so right now i've pitched or am pitching schattenfall which is the book andre of the untranslated loves so much i'm very grateful to him in general for the the attention he's given me and the stuff he's turned me on to he's just mm. in, As Will Evans, the uh, editor and publisher of Dalkey, says, uh, you know, he's the world's best reader. And I think that's, there's a lot of truth in that. Um, And so, Schattenfroh, my co translator, Cosima Matner, who's a German PhD student and teacher at Columbia as well, she and I uh, produced a little sample and then we realized it wasn't quite long enough. So, we've got a few publishers who are really excited about Schattenfrau And I think we'll get something signed in the next couple of years. That's an insane wildly difficult thousand page German. novel. <laughs> so that's going to be a lot of fun. And I'm very grateful to have a, a co-trade translator on that, especially cause it's highly abstract. A lot of it's written in middle high German. Um, so, but I'm, I'm, I'm probably most excited about <laughs> and that. Although I should put a hierarchy. I'm equally excited about everything. Uh, the, but the uh, shot will be a really fun challenge. And much as I felt with blue Lard, the broken book I initially got turned on to, um, or the this Rogen book I started translating the Srogan book that kind of was the the biggest segment of that carrot on the stick. Uh, it it's something I just look at and go, this is such an incomprehensible, wild, interesting thing. You know, it's 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 a monument to strangeness. It's like a monument made out of the ice you find on Mars that's a thousand miles high. So it's I love stuff like that that like I said before, to take something you don't fully understand make it something that you do. And that's still very beautiful. That's really the ideal goal of this whole thing. Then I'm, yeah. So the other cool stuff that's in down, you know, happening maybe is this uncovered Saline novel that was recently discovered. I think I might, uh, the rights haven't been acquired yet because there's a huge battle. I don't know if you heard the story of it, but so it's.
0: Yeah. I heard about this. This is really exciting.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it's the third book in the trilogy with Voyage and Moir Crédit, which is um, insane. They found it. It's caspique, like jawbreaker, I guess you could say. Uh, And uh, that book is just, I mean, I haven't read it, obviously, because they just found it. And someone had been kind of keeping it hidden away because they didn't want, you know, Nazi heirs to be getting money. And uh, so but now that it's been uncovered, there's, again, a huge rights Battle, but I'm hopefully going to be doing that for NYRB. That's knock on wood. I also have a project with Ian Sinclair, the great British writer, and I want to retranslate Guignol's Bend, which is Celine's great London novel that has only been published in two parts in English. So by different publishers, by different translators, and it's one novel. And Celine, you know, really loved it, thought of it as one of his best books. A lot of British novelists love it i think it might be saline's best book not having read cast peep um but there are some rights issues with that that that's sort of making it seem like the the newly discovered book that's currently embroiled in these uh you know vicious uh legal cases might might actually happen first because rights rights disputes are so sort of incontrovertible and annoying but um so hopefully, you know, knock on wood, nothing for sure yet. I would love to do that. Um, then the um, Goldstein. So the Remember Famagusta, another one of Andre's books that I actually did a very long sample of that I've got a publisher who is pretty will write a contract as soon as I want it. And I don't want it yet because it's uh, <laughs> because it's uh, I don't have time for it right now. But um, so I, I've essentially got that one settled and I'll probably look to to sign that contract and get going in earnest in the next three years probably. But and then hopefully do the sequel as well, which I actually have right here, The Fields of Calm. So they're wow. both very interesting, wild, uh sort of auto fictional hyper I like Mark Lubavietsky, my uh, advisor at Columbia's description where he says hypertrophic uh in-between prose. So it's sort of like uh, just exploded auto fiction where it's going in every direction. Uh, but mm. those very cool prose styles, very cool Russian, Russian novelist who is very underrated. And I I, mean, I really enjoyed translating the sample. That's uh, three, four chapters that I think, uh, you know, got some interesting response to that. And then other than that, I think Ilizarov the very controversial Russian writer, who in certain respects is an heir to Sorokin, um, his new novel, Zimlia, or Earth, Um slash soil not i guess you could read it as earth in a sort of science fiction way but it really is like it's about a grave grave digger or a guy who becomes uh, embroiled in the cemetery business and the sort of nasty post-soviet space i really love this book it's sort of um like a modern dead souls it's uh it's long it's immersive it's stupid it's like sticking your head in a toilet Uh, which (laughs) the the funny thing about Sorokin is that I've talked to a lot of people about the differences between Yijisarov and Sorokin Sorokin always maintains a sort of sense of clean classical proportion like a Hitchcock movie so no matter how nasty it gets it's always very neatly choreographed there's always a sense of clear movement it's like bebop you know it's like ticking along Yijisarov is not like that so Earth is really like sticking your head in a toilet book Um, but I, I like it for for that reason kind of and um that with a publisher um we have a yeah that's gonna get signed up next year i think and will hopefully be released in like 2023 2024 and it's quite a long book so really have a full schedule with all the translation stuff and after after all that's done my real sort of goal is guillotas to do a couple of late guillotas which i don't know if you've heard of it but uh, there are a few different books by him that not his late autofiction, but his late uh books like progenitor which reads like fitting in wake mixed with the marquis de sade so it's wow. really in its 800 pages and they're like i think he has about two thousand pages of these late novels uh, and i would like to do at least one of them as a sort of uh real challenge to myself and sort of challenge to the to the world uh, to see you know what what we can make of it together uh, as the readers who would read it me translating it you know to go to delve in the scholarship a bit I think for me translation is the ultimate way of engaging with these sorts of difficult things which I look at and don't don't fully understand so after all that down the line that's sort of my dream project I, I sometimes uh, you know think about I have a copy of Puganito right by my desk, but I always look out and go, one day we will (laughs) I'll give you I'll give you a shot. And then I look at the first page and go, where the hell would I even begin?
0: (laughs) (laughs) We'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with Max Lawton This episode is sponsored by Lit Burger. This week's specials, the Norman Mailer E-shaped patty on rye with kosher pickles comes with a free steak knife. Mmm, delicious. Or try the Jonathan Franzen, plain white bread with no filling. How about the Welbeck? A bottle of red wine and a packet of fags. No burger included. Check out the full menu at libburger.com. Please note, the J.K. Rowling Burger has been cancelled. Welcome back to Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with Max Lawton. Let's move on to your book because you were kind enough to send it to me oh, it's i'm not going to reveal <laughs> yeah it's 500 pages it's really good uh it starts with a russian student in in new york and then it goes somewhere i didn't expect do you want to tell us a little bit about it just not reveal too much
1: sure i mean, i to reveal a bit i think um thank you first of all for reading because uh i appreciate your kind words and um yeah it's a really weird thing to write especially before I think you have to approach your own writing ironically uh always but especially before you're published or renowned because i think that it's important to recognize that what we're doing is uh, suroken has a funny description of writers it's just people who write their vivid fantasies down on tree bark <laughs> so it's just like it's quite a decadent and ridiculous thing to be doing but um no i, I um so progress it's called and it's about yeah these two students who are students in New York and there's a, an event uh, and all wheels stop spinning and um, all, there's no more electricity and sort of the, the the laws of the most elementary laws of physics seem to have been totally suspended. So they, these two sort of best friends decide to walk from New York to the, um, uh, narrator's home in Ohio and uh, while that's a bit more complicated than that there are a few more characters who pop in by way of uh, unstable worldhood I guess you could, I guess you could say but um, it's sort of the reason I wanted to write it initially is um, to write just with the vocabulary of infrastructure <laughs> to describe objects and to sort of uh think about the world as it was and to come up with the language for that so a big part of the book is just devoted to like describing freeways and different kinds of synthetic stone or different kinds of freeway infrastructure or like the sorts of weird foods they have on the shelves at convenience stores so for me this was really a sort of at least so there are two parts of the book and then the second part is about which is also much more controversial as i'm sure you noticed uh and might actually well there are two versions of the book i'm actually sending out and i wrote the two parts separately not thinking they were one book but then my uh one of my readers um a british reader wonderful wonderful reader uh, david he read the two books and said this is one book and it really they they they, they rhyme so neatly and uh they really should be one project and i think it makes the whole thing better because they're sort of flip sides mm. of the toxic uh, insane world we live in the second one is about an oxford professor who goes insane and decides to find and kill the perpetrator of a terrorist attack after after there's one in oxford um much more problematic in a certain sense so the two there are two versions going out to publishers one is the whole 500 page edifice and one is the uh just the walking story, sort of, yeah. because I think, which I i don't think it's selling out because I conceived of it unto itself. And I do like the sort of director's cut version or is the file I sent you says the super cut. But I also, mm-hmm. the, the individual version of the, uh, with just the walking for me is a very emotional thing. Not because it's serious in the, the actual construction of the plot. I think I picked up enough from Sorokin uh, with like the conceptual framework that I don't you shouldn't take the plot seriously on a direct level but just describing that world of the American highway it's sort of it's weirdly emotional I don't know why I, I want it just to be a monument to our weird little stage of history just describe it and that's it and uh, yeah there's something emotional about just describing things even if you're looking up tons of weird construction words for like what kinds of Tiling they use on the tops of McDonald's or something. So yeah, no, I I, I really uh I really enjoyed writing that and it was a, an emotional experience. And uh now I'm right I'm ri- writing short stories. So I have another novel idea, but I don't want to write it for a couple years because I want to just you know get stronger as a writer. I think short stories are really fun to write. I have a lot of ideas for them, and I've been writing one a month. They also allow you to translate too because you just come you know you can to kind of do both whereas a novel really takes you over for for a long time so um I've got a few big short i've got a big short story about uh a a, a postdoc who is tasked by the British government with writing a combination of mein Kampf and boswell's life of johnson and that <laughs> that is hopefully going to get published by a pretty big periodical this year i've had lunch with an editor who I won't name um and the another story uh that's about it's a love story centered around three identical copies of hannibal the novel by thomas harris and wow. a guy trying to extract sugar from vanilla yogurt because he's on a keto diet and nuclear war that mm-hmm. i like that's that story is hopefully going to come out from another uh, big magazine but so i've Really been enjoying writing short stories a lot. I think uh Sarokin says that there's an especially juicy pleasure you get from writing and reading short stories. And I've been I've really uh yeah, that's been a lot of fun. Novels are a pain. you know, you get a big headache when you're writing a novel, but it's good because they're they're monumental. But Mm -hmm. um, no shorts I so that's sort of where my own stuff is, but uh it's sort of all about balancing the the translation and my own writing and not taking it too seriously, you know, because I know that I'm what I'm doing is totally decadent and, uh, and it's just for me. And uh, if anyone else likes it, then I'm happy and I'm happy to have them along for the ride. But it's not like, a, you know, you don't as a writer, you, you never know what's going to happen. You never know how you're going to be received. You never know. You don't know if you're good or not. All you can do is write and just hope for the best.
0: We'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with Max Lawton. This episode is brought to you by Thomas Hardy’s Tess of the Durbervilles*, as read by Kendrick Lamar. Tess of the Durbervilles, A poor woman faithfully presented by Thomas Hardy on an evening in the latter part of May, a middle-aged man was walking homeward from Shaston to the village of Marlat, and then joining Vale Blakewall Breakwalk. Get it now on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with Max Lawton. All right, let's move on to your gateway books. What were Mm -hmm. some books that uh, opened up the world of literature for you?
1: This is something I wrote. You probably noticed this in progress, actually, that I put a lot of stupid kids' books in, (laughs) early young adult books, Um, because I think it's funny. They're obviously the books that opened me up to serious literature, but something I've been thinking about more and more, sort of the role of, bad books or the role of non-canonical trashy books and uh so i i loved stephen king when i was a kid i loved you know the pen dragon books when i was in middle school i loved oh i don't know uh, a lot of real real trash uh cirque de freak i remember reading that uh i remember reading um oh gosh i mean game of thrones end of middle school I think it was as for serious literature, which I think, you know, I don't, I think it's interesting, something Sorokin's clearly thinking about in his later work is how we can bring the pleasures of trashy uh, sort of commercial literature, which you read in this totally immersed way and sort of make that pleasure a part of highbrow fiction. I think that's a question I think about a lot, and I really want to kind of engage with it. And the new gold novel is actually a great response to that. But so as for highbrow fiction, I probably, I mean, I read gravity's rainbow in early high school and I think I was a little too early cause I was befuddled by it. Uh, I mean, I was entranced by it cause I'm always entranced by things I don't understand, but I remember reading it and being like, wow, this is crazy. <laughs> and, uh, there's some really inappropriate scenes in here <laughs> and, uh, but I, I don't think I really got it to be perfectly honest. Well, the first book that really, really landed, I think it was two. It was The Brothers Karamazov and The Elementary Particles by Welbeck. Mm. Those were two books that I read. And I just remember feeling like, wow, literature can give you a feeling that's totally indescribable. And uh, it's, like a, it's like a drug trip, you know? It's, it's, you're totally addicted to it. You don't want to leave the book. It changes the way you see the world. It's it's a really unique and indescribable feeling. And it's uh, it's very addictive. So I think with Elementary Particles, with The Brothers Karamazov, 2666, I actually, and I'm going to say something that I'm sure will get some funny comments, uh, Murakami. And I still think Murakami is a great writer. He gets a lot of hate. And I think people like to flash their bona fides by hating on Murakami. Not the the sexist critique of him is fair even though you know yeah i understand that critique but the critique that he just is a terrible writer and blah 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 i think is a little dull and i think people who want to be serious readers do that a lot in a way that i go oh okay well whatever but i remember reading kafka on the shore in florida when we were on vacation with my family right after i'd had mono so i was just like probably 15 or 16 and just lying in a beach chair uh and just devoured Kafka on the shore after I bought it at some weird tourist bookstore uh and I remember I lost this copy but I remember it had uh someone's like highlighter at the cap had fallen off and marked the the uh the pages the outside the edges of the pages so I just remember that copy of Kafka on the shore so that that was really in high school were the big ones and then Again, it's probably pretty cliche, but uh, going to college, it was, you know, my struggle. The, the Kanawha's Gold version, obviously. Then it was um, the Krasnohorkai, getting hooked on to Ulysses, uh, which is, I mean, obviously an incredible book. Gravity's Rainbow, uh, reading all the Dostoevsky books, reading all the Tolstoy books, reading all all of Gogol, reading all um, um I think it was yeah I don't there's nothing I I feel like people like to have these radically uh out of the box favorites that uh that uh sort of define their reading trajectory but I think mine are pretty pretty stayed in a certain respect oh Will Self Ian Sinclair you know British style British stylists are really important to me because I think they've got a sort of sort of laser precision that um that you need as a writer and that sometimes americans don't have as much because there's a certain kind of mealy mouthedness which even to be honest infects pynchon's later work like if you compare uh, the prose and bleeding edge and inherent vice and fineland and even against the day to like how diamond edged and precise he is in gravity's rainbow it's pretty it's pretty crazy um I spent, I've spent, and then I think I sort of just got into some, you know, when you're in grad school, the cliches, you kind of get into really esoteric stuff and devote yourself to it and forget, forget that it was ever inaccessible. And I think that's definitely been true of me in a certain case, in a certain respect, like a Finnegan's wake. I'm reading that for the second time right now, kind of acting as if it were a normal novel. Cause the first time I read it, I did it so slowly. Um, and now I'm just kind of reading it at a normal pace. I mean, not, more than ten pages a day, but that's still fast fitting its wake. And it's it's very, very, very fun and I very specific kind of pleasure. Uh, it's not a book for everyone, but it's definitely giving me a, a you know, it's all about these books that give you a feeling for things that uh that are possible. And I loved be, reading being in time as well for the same reason. Phenomenology of spirit I devoted an amount incredible amount of time to over the pandemic with these incredible YouTube videos by the guy from Milwaukee, Dr. Gregory Sadler, Half Hour Hegel. Really recommend those videos to everyone. It's my little pitch, but um, but I don't know how much I like the book compared to Being in Time. And Being in Time was like a totally revelatory experience reading that. So that, that's sort of the whole trajectory. I'm sure I'm forgetting some stuff, but it's sort of funny how you go from Stephen King and Clive Barker and Aragon to like I don't know Finnegans Wake and Being in Time. So. I, <laughs> And I do try to fight that a little bit. I had this thought at one point in the pandemic and I watched all of the classic Dario Argento movies over like a 10 day period. And I just thought I want to be this stupid and this, you know, I want to be stupid in the way I write. I want to I be an idiot. And I think that idiocy is important. And I think that idiocy is also brings pleasure to the reader and brings pleasure as you write. So I, I, I endeavor to be an idiot in my writing <laughs> and I try not to, disappear too far up my own behind is my reading trajectory which suggests that might be
0: (laughs) (laughs) all right speaking of that um what are you currently reading uh what are you looking forward to and what have you recently enjoyed
1: oh so i'm reading right like i said fitting his wake doing a reread of that uh and i'm also reading um the complete um in search of uh, lost Last time. time. Yeah, that's what's called in English. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um I'm reading because I've never finished it and I need to finish it for I'm um, the dissertation chapter I'm writing next sem- semester. Um so I'm reading that, and I'm reading Finan's Wake. Again, I feel like I always Knazgold talks about this like only reading the, the biggest and most important books, and I think I'm sometimes guilty of that too, where it's like I devote my a lot of time to stuff that's um, you know, uh very, the most canonical books. Um, but I also am reading, um, uh, oh, <laughs> I'm reading his book out of the world in German as well. I try to read in different languages at all times. Um, sort of like a little bit of time in all the languages I read in every day, but I obviously it doesn't work. So, um, <laughs> I, uh, but I'm really enjoying Out of the World. It's a fantastic book. I'm excited for that to come out in English from Archipelago. So those are the three I'm reading now. And over the holiday, I've got a really good lineup that I'm very excited for. I've got a copy, new copy of the new Welbeck novel in Oh, mail.
0: tell me more. Tell me I don't,
1: more. I, they haven't told me anything. It's a total secret. So it's coming from <laughs> Gallimard. I'm probably writing a review of it. Um, and I got a review copy uh i am planning to. If i'm writing a review of it i think and i think they'll publish it but um it's not for sure but i'm getting a review copy and uh i'm so excited they haven't told me the title i'm not allowed to talk about it you know uh it's in the mail from france right now so i'm very very excited for that i'm excited for uh the Moresco french uh translation of his book um the beginnings i think it's called in english um which I read in Italian and I like I said though my Italian's not perfect so it was a lot of deciphering in French I read like English the first book in this very monumentally large trilogy just came out in French I'm very excited to read that over the holiday and there's one more oh yeah someone gave me a copy of American Dream by Norman Mailer which I've never read. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that I'm kind of excited just kind of delve into uh for some I don't know for that it's sort of a I, people don't really read Norman Mailer anymore there's actually in the newest short story I wrote there's a bookshelf that the Thomas Harris uh, short story where there are all these Norman Mailer books and sort of a little bit of a joke but I think someone uh, gave it to me because because I was making a joke about him but I, I'm going to read that just for fun so but I'm very excited for the Moresco and the Welbeck obviously those are going to be just I couldn't ask for better holiday holiday reads than those
0: I'm extremely jealous of you getting to read The Wellbeck before anybody else. That's, uh, yeah. I can't wait to read that when it comes out in English, whenever yeah, it is next year.
1: You know, it's 763 pages long.
0: I know, insane.
1: I, that, that worries me a little, though, because I don't know if he can sustain that. He's not the most expansive writer. Someone like Sorokin or Hanke. Oh, I should have talked about Hanke when I was talking about my favorite books. But I did yeah. already talk about him. So, <laughs> <laughs> But I do I do love Peter Hanke. And actually reading him over the pandemic. I read probably 15 novels by him, all of which yeah. were about 10 pages long. Uh, and um, that was totally incredible. Um, but uh, I don't think he has the range necessarily to, to do sci-fi or whatever. But uh, although there are elements of sci-fi and elementary particles, uh, hmm. I just don't know. It'll be interesting to see if he can, if he can maintain that, that range. Well,
0: with, on him, just quickly, what's his best book?
1: Elementary particles, for sure. It would be, for me, elementary particles, serotonin, submission, um, extension of the field of the struggle, yeah. map in the territory, then I would say uh, probably Platform and Possibility of an Island tie in, tie in last, because okay. I don't think either of them are that good.
0: Well, I'm looking forward to this 736-page uh, novel when Oh, it comes I am too. I am too.
1: <laughs>
0: we'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with Max Lawton. This week's episode is brought to you by the new children's book, Where's Peng Shui? Available now at all good book retailers. Welcome back to Beyond the Zero. It's time to hear Max's top 10.
1: Again, a little cliche maybe, but uh, it's Ulysses, the Brothers Karamazov, Blue Lard, The Melancholy of Resistance, The Elementary Particles, The Kindly Ones, My Struggle, Canal's Gold Version, uh, 2666, Gravity's Rainbow. Oh, I totally forgot to about, talk about Par- Peter Nadash Parallel Stories, uh, then The Kantos, and uh, Being in Time. Those are, those are, that's 10, I think.
0: I think it was 10, it might have been 11. Yeah.
1: Might've been 11. And then the two writers who don't have uh, any books in that list, but who are my favorite writers. There's some of my favorite writers. They just don't, their style doesn't really necessarily, isn't conducive to single books. Those are Hanke and Sinc- Sinclair, Ian Sinclair. So I really love uh, Peter Hanke and Sinclair, but I think like I talked about before, sometimes certain writers aren't single painting writers. They're all about having their own museums. Um, yeah, but that's, and I, and I would even maybe say rereading Finnegan's Wake this time, you could say Ulysses slash Finnegan's Wake. Okay. I think they're very complimentary. And I think they, they um, it's like a twinned, a twinned masterpiece, <laughs> you could say.
0: With Peter Hankey, I haven't read his books yet. He's been on my list for years, but um, where's a good starting place with him?
1: I would recommend reading them chronologically because okay. his style develops in a really interesting way. And his earlier books are sort of like, object object obsessed um versions of the stranger by Camus that i like much more than the stranger i don't i mean it's an okay book but um they're really weird and it's like imagine a guy making a movie of the stranger but instead of filming the protagonist he's just filming random objects around the protagonist (laughs) and then he develops into this weird sort of uh much more poetic style where he's writing about rock formations and political history and like moving through space and the weather. And all the books are kind of the same, but a little bit different. And it it, it kind of feels like it's all been subjected to the cut up method, the Burroughs cut up method. Super interesting. Um, But I, I really love his bibliography. What I should also say, I should talk about Parallel Stories because that's a really important book for me. Totally spaced on it. This is probably, this is my out of the box choice, actually, because I think a lot of people haven't read this book and it is very strange. So it's a Hungarian novel. Uh, Nadash is usually mentioned in top three, four Hungarian writers of all time, but is kind of um, poorly understood outside of Hungary, I would say. Uh, and that's even, I don't know if he's understood in Hungary, because I don't know if you can understand him as such, but it's an incredibly weird book that's about as long as and Peace* and it's about a family but it's not really about anything it's just about bodies moving through space and uh sort of the experiences the bodies have and uh it's it sort of does what kanovsgald does in presenting a version of history that's all about um uh, individual bodily experience but it's much more radical so it'll be like a very important day in hungarian history where there's a a riot or a sort of uh you know little skirmish with the soviets or you know snipers will be firing on bread lines instead of writing about the history it'll just be like a 200 page sex scene or a description of a guy eating sausages and getting diarrhea and it's all written in this incredibly strange style highly elliptical but i just absolutely love this book it is uh i've read it three times now it's um very strange very brilliant novel that's its vision of human life again as with uh, 2666 and The Brothers Karamazov and The Elementary Particles, when I read it, I just felt like I was seeing the world anew, and uh, it's really an underrated book that I highly recommend. It's uh, it's great. His earlier novel's not quite as good, uh, Book of Memories. It's all right, but it's a little bit uh, more twee in the sense that His whole thing is describing interior states and bodily experiences in enormous detail. And in the earlier book, he kind of describes it uh, in less detail. No, he doesn't describe the body. He wrote it during the Cold War. So before, uh, you know, the Iron Curtain fell. So Hungary would not, he could not have possibly published parallel stories. And even publishing Book of Memories was, I don't, there's a complicated publication history. I think it might've been published, but I'm not sure because, but so the bodily stuff is not pushed to the limit as much as it is in parallel stories. This, there's not as much weird sex and descriptions of glands and like, there's a big joke on Twitter, actually, whenever parallel stories comes up, comes up that, um, people talk about how many times, uh, the translator used the word bulbs to describe penises <laughs> <laughs> and, and apparently in Hungarian, the vocab is much more varied. I actually have the German translation, but I need to, I need to read it. Um, but, uh, that, cause I'll never learn Hungarian probably much as so I might like to, it's just psycho hard. And, mm. uh, the translators who do translate do such a good job. I feel like, um, I wouldn't be needed. Um, so that yeah, parallel stories, everyone should read that book for sure.
0: It's definitely interesting. I found it really challenging to read when I read it. and mm. I, I I'm will... glad you've read it. That's yeah. great. I, I remember, I think the book before that, uh, the one you were talking about, I think Susan Sontag destri- described it as like yes. the best book, the 20th century or something. And yes. um, so I did read Parallel Stories as well. And I will go back there. I just, maybe I need to be older or maybe I need to, you know, to, to read it differently. But the first time I read it, I, was a, I struggled with it
1: it's weird it doesn't really have a plot mm. uh it's just there's a maybe a, the slightest diaphanous hint of a plot and uh no it's it, it's sort of like the haunty thing i described where it's like you have a kind of typical eastern european family story except it's being made by a pornographer who also leaves the camera on for hours at a time <laughs> so it's just like this book is insane but i don't know something about it just intoxicated and intoxicates me um i think it's just maybe i read it at the right time too but it also has to do with the principle of idiocy which i hold so dear uh so i i think erudition is important but for me as a reader and a writer i like i like stuff that's dumb in a in a certain kind of intelligent way and i think parallel stories is definitely stupid in an intelligent way because it um yeah it's uh it's it is stupid in a certain way right you know the stuff that's described the sort of bloody mindedness with which these bodily states of exception are gone through or there's no real purpose to it or that you could ascribe a purpose to it right like oh history doesn't exist it's all about the body and i think there's value in that but on the other hand it's just a guy who wants to write a uh, sort of weird semi-pornographic uh proustian prose that uh over this enormous span of time and words and i think uh no i I love that book i would recommend going back to it but i understand people who don't like it
0: (laughs) yeah cool all right well before we wrap it up do you want to tell us where we can find you online and uh where we can look forward to reading all your translations
1: yeah yeah so everyone i'm on twitter you can follow me at i think it's just max no it's at Max max daniel lawton yeah yeah and uh yeah follow me there there'll be updates about all these projects i've talked about um and so april 2022 uh we'll be get therefore hearts and uh, tiller will be coming out they'll be available on amazon local bookstores uh better get your local bookstore uh i'm sure or directly from their websites if you can't if your local bookstore doesn't stock it and uh yeah no I'm, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to talk about all this. I hope, uh, I hope my, my real goal in translating all this stuff is to bring the sort of radically wild and idiotic and perverse and erudite and deranged books I love to read in other languages uh, to the English, to the Anglophone world. So I, I, I hope, I hope everyone listening will come with me on this weird ride and uh, thank you for, uh, you know, giving it, uh, giving it this attention.
0: Well, thank you so much, Max. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thanks once again to Max Lawton. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at beyondzeropod, and you can email us at beyondthezeropod at gmail.com. We'll be back next week.